The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. On a weeknight recently, people are filling the theater at the New York Times building, waiting to see a movie that I had been working on since last summer, all about our changing perception and definition of gender in society. I was pretty nervous about how it would be received because it is a subject that is sensitive, sometimes fraught, and everyone seems to have an opinion. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to the New York premiere of Gender Revolution, A Journey with Katie Couric. That's when you should... are incredibly proud of this documentary. Together- and, and, and honestly, Katie, you should be, because not only is it an incredible movie, but it forces you to think about this subject in a very new and different way. How did you get interested in putting this together? Well, you know I'm crazy, Brian, and I like to tackle subjects that are big, honking, complicated, and hard to understand. And I don't know, I think I'm drawn to controversy in some ways, too, because This topic can be quite polarizing, but everywhere I turned, people were talking about gender, whether it was Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair or the Department of Defense changing its policy about transgender service people. Or a transgender speaker at the Democratic National Convention last summer. That's right, Sarah McBride. I interviewed Sarah after that speech, um, which was obviously historic. And then when my daughter Carrie told me at Stanford, sorry to school drop, but I am proud of my daughter, that in discussion groups, you go around the room saying your name and your pronoun, I thought, wow, things have really changed since I went to college back in the dark ages, well, in the late 70s. And I wanted to understand and get a better handle of what was going on. So I traveled across the country and met all kinds of people. And I didn't want to really focus on famous people. I wanted to focus on everyday Americans who are struggling with this issue, who are facing it head on, because I thought, who better to help me understand our changing understanding and perception and definition of gender than people who were going through it themselves. Not only were some of the folks featured in the documentary on hand in New York City and earlier in Washington, D.C. at the premiere there, but some of them are not sick of me yet, and they're nice enough to talk with us today about the gender revolution and their roles in it. Vanessa and J.R. Ford live in Washington, D.C., and they've really been on the front lines of this gender revolution because they've been living it. Their daughter, Ellie, who is five years old, was born a boy, but when she was four, told Vanessa and JR that she was a girl in her heart and in her brain. They have been very outspoken, very open about helping Ellie transition. And they also have a son named Ronnie. I got to know them when I did my recent documentary. They're great people. I feel like they've become friends 
And I'm so happy that they're here to talk about their experiences today. Hi, Vanessa and JR. Hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. So nice, nice to have you here. Let's start uh, from the very beginning, as uh, Julie Andrews would say <laughs> in The Sound of Music. Um, you know, I know that your son, Ronnie, also went through a phase where he dressed in girls' clothing. But that phase, I know, ended fairly quickly. With Ellie, you told me, Vanessa, you had a different child. Tell me the difference between how Ronnie sort of experimented with gender roles and the way Ellie ultimately seemed to be in the minds of experts and you and others as a trans child. Yeah, sure. It seems more complicated, I think, than it is if you're living it. Um, with Ronnie, we knew when he was around three that he loved to play dress-up with his friends and put on princess clothes and wizardry clothes. And by the time he was four, he wouldn't put on dresses anymore. And he, in that time, just started to take on more of the expression of a boy, which he is. Um, Ellie would do the same thing around the same age, right? Jay, she would put on dresses, and the difference is she never wanted to take them off. Um, There were a few differences. She never wanted to take them off. She would wear them over snowsuits. I know in the documentary there's this picture of her in a purple dress and a hat, and she just looks like this marshmallow of a little girl. Um, And that was still six months before, before we changed name and pronoun. And and Jay and I used to joke, like, oh, we need to leave dresses on all the time because she was so much easier with them on. I was going to say Brian um, is less familiar with this than I am mm-hmm. having immersed myself in, in the topic. Brian, when you hear a story about Ellie, what comes to mind for you, a cisgender guy who's sort of been raised with a very binary notion of male and female? And somebody who's a new parent with a four-month-old child putting myself in the shoes of Vanessa and JR trying to grapple with if something like this were to happen in our family. And actually, having heard from you, Vanessa, right now, my first question was, at what point did you take seriously the idea – and JR, you could answer this as well – that this was more than a phase like what Ronnie went through, that this was actually perhaps who she really is? Uh, I, I think it was when she would wear the dresses over every article of clothing that she, you know we had. You know, she put them over snowsuits, over her uniform. Um, we knew that something was different about her, but we but we didn't necessarily think no. about trans things. We no. thought maybe we had a boy who liked dresses, right? Right. right. But we knew that something was different, and I think we. We picked up on that. We just didn't know exactly what we were dealing with at that point. Mm -hmm. JR, you know, one thing I didn't ask you about, I think when a parent has a child of a certain gender, you know, if you have a daughter, you have a son, you automatically, I think in your mind's eye, have certain expectations about how that child is going to grow up, the relationship you're going to have with that child. You had a son, Ronnie. You had a son, you thought. What was it like when you first had to come to terms with this? Because you all are so together and so supportive, but there had to be a moment when you were like, oh my God, what is going on? What does this mean? How do I protect my child? How do I deal with this? What was that like for you as a father? I I guess it it, it took me aback. You know, when Ellie was born, we had already identified through an amniocentesis, I believe. Right. You know what what we thought her gender was, just based right. on. We didn't her. know the difference between gender and yeah. sex back then. Or and ge- so, yeah. yeah, we. I went into it just with my naivety, you know, going into pregnancy about this is going to be our son, um, you know. But when things start to change, and I started to realize that, you know, Ellie is Ellie. Um, early on, um, not even knowing what transgender means, that was a whole new world for me. And and I'm still trying to unpack all that now because there's still things that I don't necessarily know about this, but it started a whole new track for me to really understand what this actually meant for me as a dad, 
um, in a traditional sense of, you know, I, I went into this, thought I was going to be raising a son, you know, and in actuality, I'm raising um, a daughter. So it required uh, a lot of mind expansion and, yeah. and openness. I mean, at any juncture, did you say to Vanessa, no way, no way, this is not going to happen. I am not going to support this. Katie, it was the opposite. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. Well, know, I think it, everyone's going to know Vanessa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that that never happened. It didn't. No, we... Well, speak, it happened well, for me, actually, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, you can tell but <laughs> you were I, the I better parent. We were, <laughs> we were both on the same page. I think it was the difference of just trying to grasp what was happening. Um, you know, Vanessa, for a period of time, she she grieved. And so it was more Vanessa saying no way, no how? Well, I, I think she was still open to the opportunity that this might not be a permanent thing because when we first learned early on that Ellie was a girl, um, I think Vanessa, and you can probably speak to this more, but you were looking for, you know, well, you know, she's still playing with right. boy toys or doing these boy, you know, these Talk about more the binary, things. Katie. I was the worst. It was, I think <laughs> Vanessa really had a, a, a very visceral reaction yeah. to it versus myself where I internalized a lot and now I'm, stri- I'm, I'm starting to unpack all those things. I mean, truthfully, Ellie needed to have a pronoun change. She had asked Ronnie to call her sister in May. We had gotten her the clothes, but I just wanted confirmation, and I didn't know a lot about this, and I was scared, and I was so used to having two little boys who were very close in age, and now with almost two years behind us, I can see, wow, why did I even think that? But in the beginning, it wasn't easy for me. I immediately went into therapy. I did a lot of of grieving. Um, now we have more in Ellie than we ever had with a son because she's so much more herself. Um, Jay actually pushed me to change name and pronoun and said, we have to do this um, for her. And even though I was the one doing all the research, it took his push. And how old was Ellie when you kind of became comfortable with the idea that this was a change that was here to stay, that it wasn't going to be a phase? Well, when she told us on her fourth birthday that she was a girl in her heart and her brain, she'd been in dresses for nearly a year. Um, and then we and, – and some of the pushback we get from others is like, well, she wouldn't have been like this if you didn't provide the dresses. And that's just not the kind of parents we are. You know, Jay went and got some of those dresses. That's just our kids can express themselves how they want. She told us on March 17, 2015, and we – she chose her name on June 23rd, 2015. So it was about a three-month period, and we just couldn't wait any longer. She was pressing us so hard and clearly unhappy w- with being not who she, not not being allowed to be who she says she was. And what's your uh, response to maybe people in your community, friends or family members, who might have said, you know, four years old is just too young for a child to come to such a consequential decision. And of course, it's something that I asked you in the documentary. I find that that's a universal response to this. Like, there is just no way in hell that a kid has the presence of mind to (laughs) say this and to say it with certainty and confidence and, you know, uh, an ability to really discern this. I'm not sure she really could even discern it. She just knew it. So when she started drawing stick figures and they were little girls, like the one, I love being who I am, what do you say to that? I say to parents, you know, she drew a family portrait, and I said, tell me about this. And she said, I love being who I am. So I wrote those words down. Um, I think I would also say that we don't question the gender of any cis or non-trans child, Um, and that they know who they are. And so we really are only questioning that identity if it differs from what we expect. And that being said, I say that with two years in the bucket now (laughs) moving forward and be able to say, oh, obviously this stuck. But that was a question I had. And I think the best thing is to say, we don't have all the answers yet. You know your child best. And we had a much happier child when we listened to her. Um, And the risks are too high not to. What has the response been like 
among her peers at school when she's in the girls' locker room before PE. Um, And even if it hasn't been so challenging up to this point, do you worry what it's going to be like when she hits puberty and the differences become more and more apparent? Well, hopefully the differences won't become as apparent because there's medical things that we can do to ensure that she doesn't go through the wrong puberty for her identity. Um, Her friends have been amazing. Um, They... She has so many friends. She's at kindergarten today. She fell and needed an ice pack, and her friends helped her. She's just another little kindergartner, and the school has made sure that she can be that little person. I think it shows um, Vanessa Bryan's sort of naivete because he only has a four-month-old. But uh, oh, locker yeah. rooms are – it's a little <laughs> premature for locker rooms for a five-year-old, oh, yeah. Brian. But, I know. But, he, <laughs> but, she, yeah. but he does raise an but important point, But I'm trying to imagine point, those Vanessa, situations. Because one day yep. – you know, in junior high, there are yeah. going to be communal locker rooms. Right. And, you know, I don't know if things have changed. I think there is mm-hmm. a move to sort of having more privacy for kids in these settings. But, you know, they're gonna, there's going to be sort of an open gym class right. where the girls are getting dressed. And, you know, I worry about, I worry about Ellie in that situation. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want her to feel ostracized by going to a different, right. you know, private bathroom, right. which I know is the setting for some kids. And right. and I, you must feel um, a little bit of anxiety and angst thinking about that. Uh, all the time. But here's the amazing thing. Um, as more and more families share their stories, or at least not loudly, but perhaps in our online groups, we have so many parent and children role models going through this right now. So we're learning what it's like to be a 12-year-old trans girl at a public school through our friends and community. We're seeing how schools are making this happen safely, and that provides comfort to what is still an unknown. And it's really going to be how Ellie deals with the situation and what she needs to feel safe. And the other thing I want to point out, which I think is so critically important, and I know you all believe so strongly in this, is the suicide, Mm -hmm. the rate of attempted or successful suicide among the general population is 4.6% among trans uh, people. It's 41%. And I know you've quoted Vanessa as high as 50%. And so I might have the numbers wrong, but too high. And, and, you know, this, this is a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. For people who, if they are not allowed to live authentically, uh, spiral into deep depression and often do try or do, mm-hmm. you know, take their own lives. So I know you were incredibly mindful of that as you pursued this path and allowing Ellie to be who she is. Yeah, we, uh, it's, I think it's been on the top of our our list of this is the reason why we need to support her. I know a lot yeah. of people have said they'd rather have an alive trans child right. than a dead child. And I know that Absolutely. sounds so harsh, but it really is true. It is true. I mean, what research has shown, and there's all kinds of studies for this, but affirming or listening to your child when they tell you who they are reduces their suicide rate 94%, and it goes back to the general population. So family support literally saves lives of trans kids. Let me go to a voicemail from a mom in Montana who we heard from who's really grappling with these issues. Let's listen, and then we'll talk about it. Hi, my name is Sue Orr from Missoula, Montana, and this whole gender thing, my son and I, my 21-year-old son, who's very much a feminist young man, uh, he and I had quite almost an argument about this whole cisgender thing because I think it's just one more layer of labeling and I don't know why if you're a man or a woman and you know that you're a man or a woman, you have to call yourself a cisgender. I think it's very confusing and um and especially for my son who is questioning everything right now including i think his sexuality we just had an argument about it and i got really upset because maybe i don't understand what it's all about so i really appreciate your documentary i'm really looking forward to watching it 
Thanks, Katie. I love your podcast. You and Brian. Thanks. Bye-bye. So here's Sue Orr. Thank you, Sue, for calling in. And I think this is fairly typical. You know, it's just this sort of ball of confusion when it comes to understanding gender and then helping kids kind of navigate this brave new world of gender. And you hear her son is, you know, grappling, it sounds like, with his sexuality, uh, which is very different than gender identity, we Mm -hmm. should say. I thought it was helpful in the documentary when Sam Kellerman says sexual orientation is who you go to bed with, gender identity is who you go to bed as. But what advice would you have for parents who are, you know, first of all, like me when I embarked on this journey, kind of the product of a very binary social construct, and learning themselves for the first time and then helping their kids figure this out? Um, what would you say to Sue? Well, I'd say to Sue, she's she's making a big step in even making that call to you because she's recognizing that having this conversation about this was upsetting for her and her son, meaning it's something that needs to be talked about. Specific to the cis issue, I've heard that a lot, but what people often say is there's trans and then people would revert to and normal, in quotes. And trans people are normal people who have a an identity that doesn't match their anatomical sex oftentimes. And so cis just allows not a label on someone else. The key is you cannot label someone else anything, um, but allows for there to be a conversation that's not just othering the trans people. It's just another way to describe themselves. But she's doing exactly what I would say to parents. She reached out to you. She watched the documentary. She's having or a she's conversation. she's going to watch it. Oh, right. She's yeah. going to watch the documentary, right? She's She's finding resources to learn even if she doesn't understand it. And that's exactly where we started, and it's exactly where almost every parent starts. And sometimes it's the older children are, uh, that are the ones to bring it to the parents. But um, I would just say be open to learn, ask questions, read, um, and then ask more questions. Yeah, if I could add, I don't know if um, the, the caller um, mentioned if she was denying him the space or the room to— kind of explore yeah. that, you know, his sexuality or his gender identity. But I think that would be the other thing was is to allow for your child um, to have that space to give them permission to, ex- to to explore who they are, give them the room and support and resources mm-hmm. uh, to kind of start that next step. And it's funny. I think that that sort of the default defensive position for people who don't feel comfortable with this is to say, hey, why do I have to exactly. uh, be cisgender? This is not my deal. This is not my problem. I'm not different. And I think, you know, it's almost just a, a sign of respect to people who are by saying, yes. okay, well, this is this is how I identify but I appreciate and understand it's not how everyone else does. I, I, you know, I think, you know, I loved getting to know you and your family, Vanessa and JR. <laughs> I really admire how you have been so open about this and in many ways are paving the way for other families. Uh, I think you're doing a real public service by being the sounding board and by your willingness to talk to others who are going through this. And I just... I just wish you and your family and Ellie all the best because one of the my favorite moments in the documentary mm-hmm. is when Jr. said in a little bit, you know, with his voice cracking, you just want to love and protect your children mm-hmm. and do what's best for them. And clearly, that's what you're doing. And I'm so grateful for your participation, not only in the documentary Gender Revolution, but for you talking about it with us today. So thank you both thank so you. very much. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. The documentary is wonderful, and uh, you're the perfect person to allow us all in. Because I'm sufficiently moronic. Is that what you're suggesting? No. no. And I think you give yourself a little bit of a hard time thinking that you're still making mistakes. But we all are making mistakes. I mean, there's a lot of mistakes we're making parenting. Listening to Ellie was not one of them. We're going to take a quick break to hear some messages from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more conversations about the gender revolution. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. 
we can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Dr. Joshua Safer is an endocrinologist who runs the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery at Boston Medical Center. Josh was a very important person in my documentary because he helped unpack the science and the biological underpinnings that may be contributing to gender identity. And it's a relatively new field of science, and he is definitely on the forefront. So he chastised me for calling him Dr. Safer. I don't know why. I just feel like it's a sign of respect. So Joshy baby, is that better? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, uh, you know, my, my nieces and nephews. <laughs> anyway, so nice to have you here in the studio. And l- let's start talking about the science of gender. What makes us identify the way we do? Well, the, the key point is that there is something biological, uh, and that's the, bi- that's the big surprise. And then in terms of the details, those are really not known to any degree. But if you're trying to conceptualize or put a model together in terms of how this might look, it might be that there are genes that encode various things, various structures in your body, and then also things in your brain that confer gender identity. So that seems to, by extension, indicate that this isn't a choice, right? This is something that seems to be predetermined biologically that makes somebody feel their um, anatomy doesn't necessarily correlate with who they feel themselves to be. Well, that's exactly the point. It's that if it is biological, then it is what it is. And the only thing that uh, probably is also true is there is going to be some degree of complexity. I don't know if this is something with multiple genes or if there are other genes for other um, other aspects of your identity that uh, onto which this is superimposed that that influence this, uh, but the bottom line, yes, is that it's biology and therefore to, at some level it is what it is. But it's not necessarily just genetic, right, Josh? I mean, there are also other factors at work. For example, in the documentary, we talk about a shot of testosterone that may come in utero in the second or third trimester that could affect the way the brain is wired. Uh, Absolutely. It is the case that uh, hormones and other things that happen in in utero affect things based on your predisposition, based on your genes. So if you have certain genes, then if you have uh, exposure to more testosterone, that's going to have certain impact. And some things are general. That is, any Anybody will have the same response, and some people will, and some things are more specific. We should mention, Brian, that Josh also helps generally 18 and older trans people with the protocol in terms of hormone treatment, correct? Uh, yeah, so I'm an adult endocrinologist, means that people who come see me are over the, 18, over the age of 18 by definition for the hospital. Uh, but you probably work with a lot of endocrinologists who see younger patients, well, right? Absolutely. I, I direct our transgender centers, and our transgender center covers the whole shebang from childhood through through the entire lifespan. And we absolutely have a pediatrician who is our expert adolescent person because that's really the age where kids need an intervention. And And how difficult is it to reach the judgment that a kid 
who wants to transition should start the medical intervention, should start the hormone therapy? What are the protocols to make sure that this isn't just a phase? Because that's a huge responsibility, isn't it, Josh? It's very intimidating making these diagnoses. Uh, I guess I'll start. Adults are relatively straightforward. People by adulthood, by the time I see people, their ability to articulate gender identity is pretty reliable. I'm not questioning it much. I have no patients who uh, have say they're not transgender after all, who've come to me and said they were transgender in the first place. So that's a zero out of 250 so far. And among uh, younger people, I know you only see adults, but among the, the juvenile transgender people who are seen by your center, what is the rate of regret or not necessarily regret, but wanting to make a U-turn and, and, and stay cisgendered? Among the kids who have said they are transgender in adolescence, we're still at zero also, and that's with a sample size of of about 40 or so. I think it's also important to point out, because I think there's so many misconceptions about this whole topic, is that when a child is four or five, they may socially transition. In other words, a parent may give them permission to express their gender as they see fit. They may change their name. They may have them identify consistently as a different gender. But it's not, I think some people are under the misconception that, oh, they're getting surgery, they're having, put, you know, they're taking drugs, they're doing all kinds of things that are truly altering them. And so if in the rare circumstance that a child then has a different gender identity a few years down the road, it's not as if that can't be reversed. Right, That's. I think that's an enormous point is especially for parents who are nervous about this, that so long as we don't intervene medically, then nothing happened. Uh, you know, kids, uh, you know, kids go to school dressed however, and so allowing kids to explore and um, it should be which a lot of kids do, right? Should be should really cause nobody any stress. I think the fear is that if you let kids explore, you will somehow induce it. exactly, and but that doesn't make any sense because if we could encourage gender identity to change, then we would have succeeded with all those intersex individuals. What, you think that because you let your male body child go to school with a dress, all of a sudden now he is going to be transgender? Right, and we're going to be talking to intersex activist Georgianne Davis about that later. Right. Um, And Josh, I think the message that you're sending, which is a very interesting one, is by the time the transitioning kid gets to the point at which he or she needs to do the medical intervention, start taking hormones or puberty blockers, there's essentially a 0% return rate for those people. They they know what they want. They're very clear about it. And in your experience, they just move forward. I'm very confident with older kids and with adults, exactly as you say. The um, the caution there is to still be a little conservative in confirming that it is really what they're articulating. So I'm not. I don't want to be passing out hormones willy nilly. Uh, my approach, as much as it sounds, it sounds a little strange or will sound a little strange to many people, is still pretty conservative. We have a voicemail from a listener who is a transgender man uh, who made this transition decades ago. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. I'm a 55-year-old trans guy here in New York City. I transitioned to New Orleans back in the 1970s. My parents were smart enough to bring me to Tulane Medical Center when I was about 13, and I was able to transition uh, pretty early in terms of uh, awareness of trans issues in the United States or anywhere in the world for that time. All right. Thanks again for the great show. Keep the good work up. Bye-bye. So, Josh, this caller transitioned in the 1970s, quite early in the scheme of, of trans medicine, as I understand it. And that, you know, the caller raises a question that I'm asked all the time. Why didn't we hear about this when we were younger? Why did I not know any transgender people? Now it seems that you hear a lot about trans kids in elementary schools and junior highs across the country. But why weren't we aware of it earlier? Uh, the big reasons are I, we didn't have any vocabulary. We believed it was, well, we believed the people who did come forward were suffering from a mental disorder. 
And people who might have thought that they were trans might have either not known how to express it and just simply tried to uh, uh, repress it. it, right? Yep, exactly. It's not unusual for me to see middle-aged people come to my practice, for starters, and they've been repressing this for decades. Let's talk about the percentage of the population because many people I've talked to have said this is an extraordinarily small percentage of the population. Do we really know how many transgender people are out there? We do not have marvelous data. Uh, on the other hand, a attempts to survey uh, various populations and ask, uh, now that we have more of a vocabulary, come up with numbers in, in the vicinity of a half a percent saying that they are transgender, so one in 200 people. And that's kind of the wow, number. Wow, are you kidding? So very large. And when that's, that's crazy because I've always read it's like 0.0001% of the population. I didn't realize that. No, it's, it's uh, it really large. And in fact, that's an important point when we're talking about in the medical establishment where I live. Do physicians need this as part of the curriculum? And the answer is, yes, they do. If you are intending to have more than 200 patients who you will be seeing at any given time, which would be a, a very small part-time practice, then the chance that one of your patients is transgender and you need to know what to do with it, at least related to whatever specialty you're in, is, 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 is going to be enormous, is going to be very important. How do you think ultimately we're going to change hearts and minds when it comes to being more accepting and able to integrate all kinds of different gender variant uh, people into society without marginalizing them, ostracizing them, and diminishing their potential? So to me, the way to change hearts and minds, there are at least uh, two strategies. One of them is believing that there is real science, that this is um, just what how people are. And the second is meeting people and having it be personal. Proximity. And, yes. As Dr. Oz told me recently, it's hard to hate up close. Brian, did you feel that way? I made Brian watch uh, the documentary <laughs> and, um, you know, he was interested. I didn't force him. But, but what were your impressions as somebody who I think is a very caring, compassionate person, open-minded. What did you learn from the documentary? Because you're sort of a good case study for me. Well, seriously, it's exactly what Josh just said. When you hear the stories and see the people, when you listen to people like the Fords talk about grappling with these difficult decisions, you become a lot more sensitive to and and aware of the fact that this this isn't a choice. This is something that is inherent to who these people are, and and the best medical evidence is starting to bear that out. Absolutely. And getting to the the year not having been exposed, that's an age thing. So my kids, by contrast, are exposed. We had a a child, a transgender girl, like uh, like the Ford's daughter. Uh, really articulate, come out as trans in grade school, in my kids' grade school. Very different experience because my kids aren't growing up never having known anybody trans. They know they know that particular child. Well, Josh Safer, uh, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and your uh, knowledge on this subject as we've been exploring this gender revolution. Thank you very much for coming in today. Well, as is obvious, it is my pleasure, and I really appreciate the opportunity to move this subject forward. Georgie Ann Davis is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and also the current president of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth. Georgianne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the things that we tackled in this documentary was um, the plight of intersex individuals such as yourself, Georgianne. And since you're the expert, can you explain what intersex is for a layperson? Sure. So intersex babies are born with sex characteristics that are not typically male or female. For example, I was born with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. It's just one intersex trait of many that exist. 
But what that means is I was born with a vagina, um, a happy, healthy baby girl. But inside, instead of having ovaries, a uterus, and fallopian tubes, I had testes. And that was not known by my parents um, or, or my providers or any of that until I was about a teenager. And at that point, I was, I remember this so vividly, I was running around outside with my friends and my brother, and I was experiencing abdominal pain. And my mother thought, given I was a teenager, that I was getting my period. And that wasn't what was happening. So once that was clear that there was something else going on, she brought me into an urgent care center. And it was there that they ran all these different tests to try to figure out what was happening. What they discovered was that that pain that I was that I was experiencing wasn't at all anything to worry about, really. It was just pain from being out of shape and running around. Um, but in the process of discovering that nothing was wrong with me, that's when they discovered that I was intersex, meaning I had testes and not ovaries, and that I have XY chromosomes and not XX chromosomes. And when that was discovered, they didn't tell me that as a 13-year-old. As a my parents didn't tell me. My doctors didn't tell me. They instead made up different diagnoses and at one point even told me that I had cancer. And the logic is that they feared that if I knew the truth about my body, that it would interfere with the development of my gender identity. I think it's hard for people to, to sort of visualize. Do you have a womb, Georgianne? No, so I was born without a uterus, and um, I don't. Ha I don't have a uterus. I don't have fallopian tubes. Um, I don't have a cervix, right? So I was born phenotypically, which means I, on the outside, I, I look female. That's why my parents did not know that I was intersex, and, and nor did my I know myself, you know, that I had anything unique or different about me. Um, we didn't know any of that. Georgianne, how did? this whole experience affect your sense of self and your gender identity? How do you identify now? And does that question kind of bug you in and of itself? It doesn't bug me, actually. I, I appreciate that question. I think it's okay to ask. Um, I, I would say, Katie, you know, I identify as intersexy now. <laughs> no, I identify as a woman. I've lived my life as a woman. That's who I am. I, I, I like to think that I also, um, in terms of my, uh, you know, experiences, I, I, I really flirt with gender queer identities and, and queer sexuality and all of that. Georgianne, how common is it to be intersex? Well, we don't really have any really good, reliable estimates of intersex in the population. In part, as I just sort of shared, doctors lie to patients about their bodies and, and their diagnosis. So some people themselves didn't don't even know they're intersex. I didn't, for one, find out until as an adult, I obtained my own medical records and discovered that I was intersex. I had to read through the redacted text and I was horrified, just really, really felt like ashamed. I felt like a freak. Um, so that's one reason why we don't have reliable estimates is because intersex people aren't often told the truth about their bodies. Having said that, Georgianne, isn't a commonly cited statistic that one in every 1,500 to 2,000 births um, is intersex? That's what some people cite, yes, and I've seen some estimates, uh, one in 150. The one thing that I do know for sure is that intersex people exist all around the world, and intersex people are as common as you might, uh, as some people say, is a redhead, which would put it on the lower end of those estimates. But even if we went with the more conservative one in 2000 or one in 150, whatever it is, I'm certain that everyone on this planet has met somebody else who's been intersex. Now, whether or not that person was comfortable being out intersex or whether that person themselves knew they were in fact intersex is a different story. Let's talk about how intersex babies are treated because activists like yourself and organizations like Interact have been increasingly vocal uh, in recent years about what is standard operating procedure in many hospitals when it comes to an intersex baby. When a baby's born with ambiguous genitalia, Georgianne, um, oftentimes doctors and parents kind of get together and they decide that that baby should be operated on. Can you explain? 
Yeah, so I don't think the decision is really as mutual as it sounds. That's how I think providers typically, and, and these are well-meaning providers in most cases, I think, you know, they're raised in the same society that views sex as very binary, right, male and female. But what typically happens is when a child is born and the intersex trait is discovered, whether it's at birth or like when I was older, um, teenage, in my teenage years, whenever that happens, doctors often frame intersex as a medical emergency. And because it's presented as a medical emergency, what happens is they establish the need for a medical response and a medical emergency response. And that sort of puts into motion all these different procedures that, as you know, I show in my work and both I know from just connecting with parents of intersex youth, that they later regret these procedures. What is the surgery that's usually done, Georgianne? It depends on what intersex trait is there. But if someone has external and, you know, so-called, in quotes, ambiguous, and quote, like genitalia, then they may do things like basically female genital mutilation by cutting the, the clitoral phallic structure, making it smaller um, because, you know, it's, it's not acceptable, supposedly, for a woman to have a larger than normal, whatever normal is, clitoris. Um, so they, they reduce it. So they and, you know, the last place I think everyone can agree that you want to lose sensation in our, in your body is on your genitals. And that that's these procedures cause a lot of nerve damage. But then they also do surgeries on the inside. So they remove things like testes, as they did in my case, because a girl is not supposed to have balls. I asked you in the documentary, what about the trauma of looking different or not fitting into a binary for a child? You told me that was a good question. I don't know if you still think that that's a good question, Georgianne, but I know that's what the medical establishment that still performs these surgeries, they come up with this as an explanation for doing so. Well, Katie, I think all questions are good questions, so I think it definitely is a good question. I'm glad you asked that. I I think it's really important to know that, you know, we only share our genitals in very intimate settings, right? We don't walk around exposing ourselves. So even if one has external, you know, um, in, in quotes, ambiguous genitalia, then no one is going to know that. I mean, think about my life. I lived 13 years without anyone, my parents who changed my diapers, right, who gave me baths. They didn't know that I had testes internally. They didn't know that I had um, a, a vagina that led nowhere, a vaginal canal. They didn't know that. Um, and what we're seeing now today with intersex youth is that they're living happy, healthy lives. They they're, they don't need surgeries to um, fit in to societal uh, norms. And to be very clear, I'm not against surgical interventions, um, providing that the person who's having them performed on their body is consenting to those procedures. And the World Health Organization and the United Nations have both come out against surgery on intersex babies, correct? Correct. I'm not alone in saying this, nor are intersex activists. We have support from major uh, organizations around the world. Before we go, Georgianne, I wanted to include the story of intersex people in this documentary on gender as really a way to talk about where gender comes from. Where do you think gender comes from? How do we, how do we kind of get establish who we are and how we identify? Well, I think gender is constantly changing and shifting. Gender is really a structure. I, I think what's really interesting about the distinction between sex and gender is that sex and gender are not the same. And these things are each in, in their own are fluid and flexible phenomenon, but they're certainly not correlated. So the attempt to correlate them can be really, really dangerous. Well, you know, I think it's wonderful that we're able to have open, direct conversations about this. I so appreciated your participation in this documentary. You know, I don't know if you all can tell, but Georgianne is a riot. She is so funny. She is so accessible. And one thing, she never made me feel stupid or insensitive for asking questions and being I, what I hope was respectfully curious about the topic. Georgianne Davis, so great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for really giving visibility to topics that are often um, invisible in society. Brian, was this everything you wanted to know about gender but was afraid to ask? 
<laughs> Almost. I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, but this has opened my eyes and opened my mind to so many issues and questions. And I really appreciate, Georgianne, your coming on and, and sharing your story. No problem, Brian. And just remember that intersex is just sort of an extreme on the spectrum of sex. Penises don't all look the same. Vaginas don't all look the same. And as I tell my students every day, if you don't know that, then I give you some homework. Go have fun and experiment with genitals. Oh, on that happy wow. note, I'm afraid, Georgianne, Brian is going to take your advice to heart. So I think I'm going to hang up now. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's different homework than I've gotten in the past, but okay. interesting. Thanks, Georgianne. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you want to see The Gender Revolution, which I highly recommend, you can access it on demand through Hulu, iTunes, Amazon, or Google Play. I assure you it's a really moving, eye-opening, illuminating look at how this issue is playing out all over the country and really well worth your time. What's also exciting, Brian, it will be distributed in schools across the country if they're interested, along with a, a study guide. And I think it's an incredible commitment by National Geographic. Their whole January issue was on gender. It's a pretty gutsy move for an iconic brand to wade into these uh, waters and to go there. I think they've gotten some backlash, as have I. But I think it's wonderful that they're providing this as a teaching tool, and not only for kids, but a lot of grown-ups like me. Thanks, as always, to Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell in New York and Ryan Connor in L.A. for engineering and mixing it. Thanks also to Allison Bresnick for her social media wizardry and to Emily Bina for her part in producing this show. And Mark Phillips. Are you listening, Mark? Thank you, as always, for our wonderful theme music. I love it. Katie Couric, Mitch Semmel, and I are the show's executive producers. And remember, you can also email us at comments at couricpodcast.com. We always read those. And you can find us on social media, too. I'm at Goldsmith B on Twitter. And, and Katie, you're on a few of the uh, social media platforms. Yes, I'm at Hot babe on Twitter. I'm kidding. I'm at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and Katie.Couric on Snapchat. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes, everyone. So don't forget to subscribe too. Talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you later. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 2024 the 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL Network ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus visit nfl.com/schedule release to learn more